Father, we sing your praise and delight in who you are. We open ourselves to you because before you there's nothing that can be hidden. We can't keep any secrets from you, though we try. We can't hide anything from you. Before the one who knows the secrets of every heart, so we open ourselves to you in worship. We are vulnerable before you. We can be safe with you. For you are a good God who is compassionate, merciful, gracious and loving. And now, Lord, we know you are a God who speaks, who has spoken and who does speak. So, as we've already heard some of your words, speak more to us, Lord, from your word. Your word is life. It brings light into our darkness. So speak, Lord, to us, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Exodus chapter 2 then. Exodus 1 reminds us of the circumstances of Moses' birth and where the Israelites are at that point in history. They're now in Egypt, have been there for quite a long time. And life is getting harder by the day. Does life get harder for you by the day? Just because we are the people of God does not mean to say we get a clear run in life. Never has been the truth in Scripture, nor in church history. So enjoy it if it is, but it's not our birthright. We wait that glorious day. We live in a world that is dysfunctional at the very best and evil and wicked at the worst. Life is getting hard, but God is on the move, even though he hasn't seemed to have had anything to do for the last few hundred years. Does it seem like that to you? You look around and you see wickedness prevailing, and wicked men getting what they don't deserve. Well, the psalmist says, don't fret because of the evildoer. Don't worry about it. God's doing things. Even if you can't see it, he's doing it. And that's the situation here. Moses has been born, spent the first 40 years of his life in the courts of Pharaoh. He's now 40 years old. I won't ask anyone here who's 40 years old. There's none of that stuff. And we'll now travel the next 40 years of his life. It won't take us long. It won't be quite as long as it takes us to travel 40 years. It's interesting what the scriptures include. So, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their flock, father's flock. 
Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters, Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And if you read it just like that, you get the impression that in verse um, 24, it's kind of as if God, someone, something triggers in God's mind, he thinks, oh yes, I remember now what I said all those years ago. And it's as if he suddenly remembers, that's not what it means. It means that God brings up to date this promise. Because we know, because we're reading the story, we're looking over the storyteller's shoulder, we know that God's rescue plan has already been in place for 80 years. Because that's how old Moses is. And we know his rescue plan has been going on for quite a long time, even though it doesn't seem like it. So never be overly concerned if it appears on the surface that God is not doing anything. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? God's chosen to tell us what he wants us to know through the device of storytelling, which is a wonderful medium. Stories are told at different levels. You have the great big overarching stories without which the Bible would just fall apart if you took them out. The cross of Jesus Christ, you take that out of the Bible, the Bible has no meaning at all. The Old Testament points to him, the New Testament explains him, and everything else looks back to him. You take him out of the story, you take Christ out of the story, you have no story. So you've got these great big overarching stories that are crucial. But you also, right at the bottom, there's another few levels, but at the bottom you have loads and loads of little details that fill in the gaps, as it were, explaining to us what it's like to be a member of the people of God, how God relates to people. And you could take some of those stories out and it wouldn't have effect at all, the Bible. The message would still be the same. You just move a few stories out. Like Peter walking on the water. Well, that's a nice little story. We could enjoy that and draw a lot of lessons from it. But if you didn't have it in your Bible, you'd still have the story of grace. You'd still have the story of salvation. We can do without that sort of little story. So what God includes and what he leaves out is fascinating. If I was to ask you, just tell folk, the person next to you, people hate this, but I'm not going to do it to you, but tell them what your week has been. Tell them your story this week. You'll all tell it in a different way. You'll tell the things that you think are important in your life. And even if you're a husband and wife doing most things together, you'll nonetheless pick different aspects because they are like that. That's the way God tells stories. So it's always interesting to see what he adds and what he leaves out. So, in the first ten verses of chapter 2, we get 
40 years of Moses' life, but really we only are told how he comes to be in Moses in, in, in Pharaoh's court. That's the only thing that we're told, really. The rest is just padding. And then we have 40 years again here, but it's interesting what he includes and what he doesn't include. Because our storyteller is moving us on to the important part of his story, which will come some chapters later. But he's giving us a background. This story is not about Moses. It's about God. It's not about the Israelites principally. It's about God doing something for the world. So this account of in Exodus is prosaic merely giving us the facts of the matter. However, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why do these things matter? What are we being told? And, uh, you know, the, it opens up with a story of two Hebrews. Well, first of all, a Hebrew being beaten up by an Egyptian, but the next day, it's two Hebrews fighting. What a strange thing, isn't it, to have two Hebrews fight? They're slaves in Egypt. Isn't life hard enough? Isn't life difficult enough? Do they need to make it worse for each other? By fighting each other? It's a tragedy when God's people make it difficult with one another. You and I both have experiences of churches and Christians who just don't get on with each other. And you think, isn't life hard enough without us actually fighting one another? A friend of ours, who is a very good evangelist, um, was talking to his neighbour at that time, and um, you know, discussing things of God. He said, "Why don't you come to church uh, some Sunday and sort of find out a bit about it?" And the guy's response was, "This was—I can't do it verbatim, but it was along these lines." Listen, he said, "I have a busy week. I've got a busy business to run. I'm busy Monday through to Saturday." The last thing I need is more busyness on Sunday. I see you in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, all day long on Sunday. I can do without that. I have enough of that all week. I need to relax. And he saw it as imposing more strain and stress. Of course, that's a misreading of it, as you will understand, but you can understand his principle. And people outside are crying out for grace, mercy, peace. They better find it in the church because they won't find it anywhere else. So when we're edited out of the throats, it's not a good story. By this time, as Stephen tells his hearers in Acts chapter 7, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And further he says that Moses knew, knows that the Israelites are his own people who would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But he's about to find out that they didn't believe that. But what we must assume, having got to this point in the story, is that Moses has remembered what he's been told at his mother's knee. We talked about that last time, didn't we? How the importance of teaching children. So holiday clubs are not babysitting for other people's pet children so they can go off and do you know, two and a half hours shopping while their children are looked after. This is getting kids to encounter God whether they're 3-year-olds or 11-year-olds, they can encounter God. So do be praying for those in your midst who are looking after them. It's not a babysitting service. It's not just entertainment. It's not about pictures and paintings and funny games. It's about encountering God through the devices of painting and pictures and funny games. But it's encountering God. If they don't encounter God, it's a waste of time. 
isn't it? And they can encounter God. Their little hearts are open. They need to be inspired. So Moses has remembered what he's learned at his mother's knee, despite all the layers of sophistication that the Egyptians have put upon him. He somehow, and the Bible doesn't tell us how, somehow he knows he's going to be the liberator of the Israelites from Egypt. He has no idea how he knows that. He doesn't have any idea how he's going to do that. But here's the point for today. There's a right way to do the right thing. There's also a wrong way to do the right thing. So Moses doesn't yet have a plan in his mind. How could he? How could one man rescue, as far as numbers is concerned, 603,550 men plus their wives and children and all the other paraphernalia? How could one man do that? Surely he has no plan. Does he think he's that big? Does he think he has that sort of influence with Pharaoh? I don't think so. Because when he kills an Egyptian and hears that Pharaoh gets to hear about it, he knows he has no standing before Pharaoh. He runs for his life. So this is not a man who's a megalomaniac. He doesn't have grandiose ideas of who he is. But somehow other, gnawing in the back, are things that he's been taught as a child that maybe you've been born for such a time as this, as a Mordecai would tell her Esther many centuries later. God has something in mind, but the time is not yet ripe for it to be triggered. Do you remember Alpha Course, still running, doing brilliantly well? Um, Nicky Gumbel, inspired bloke, uh, really brought that to the fore. It was, it was uh, created many years before Nicky Gumbel came on the scene. And I believe I know the person who had a hand in writing it. And it served a local church in London, South London, for quite a few years. And then, basically, as these things often do, gathered dust on shelves until Nicky Gumbel came along and in one way or other rediscovered it, dusted it off and thought, this is great, and took it on. Because it was God's timing. There's something about God's timing. You can struggle and struggle and struggle, but when God says, now... Suddenly, woof, it all takes off in a way that leaves us gasping. The time is not yet. Things have to happen before Moses will be ready and the circumstances will be ready. You can't push God to do anything. We need to be both eager and involved in what God is giving us to do, but also willing to let God take his own time because he can never be late. How could he? So there's more training for Moses to receive. So why is this little story told? Maybe it's to remind us that Moses hasn't forgotten where he's come from, that the blessings of being a part of royalty haven't turned his head, that the arrogance of wealth and power have not made him immune from compassion towards oppressed people, towards downtrodden people. None of the blessings that he's received over the years while he's compatriots have been suffering have turned his head. He's completely wrong to murder the Egyptian. Let's get that straight for a start. Some Christians have a problem with these sort of verses because it doesn't say and then God murdered him because it doesn't seem to say anything. God is against murder. He will one day carry stones handwritten by God that will explicitly say do not murder. And he uses a murderer 
and carry them down to the people. He's completely wrong to do it. But God does not at this point do anything about that. He's just recording this stuff. So often in Scripture you find things recorded without comment. Don't misunderstand those. But nonetheless, nonetheless that he's a man who can commit this awful crime, he's also a sensitive and bold guy who's unwilling to let things pass him by. So his education is not complete. God is going to have to move him on to the next stage of his education and God uses his rash action of murder and Pharaoh's harsh reaction as a means whereby he can be ejected from one place, the comforts of Egypt, and placed in the next place of his training. God uses all sorts of devices to get us to do what he wants us to do. He's not manipulating us, but he can bring around us around to wherever he wants us to be. Have you ever experienced that? Where you feel that God really opens a door for you and you make decisions on the basis of it and you walk through it and suddenly you find the door closed. But now you've left where you were and you feel stranded. Perhaps the thing wasn't that this is the right thing, it was to get you out of that and on the move. Where you're thinking, now what? I can't go back to where I was before. What now? That's been Lynn and my experience on more than one occasion in our life. We really thought this was what God was going to do. He opened the door wide and said, walk through it. So we opened the door wide, walked through it, the door slammed behind us, and we're out in the cold, and God says, it all sort of evaporated. It was to get us out of where we were in order that we could discover what God had next for us. So the Midianites, he heads east to the Midianites. They are actually related to the Israelites. I won't bore you with the relation there. If you want to find out, it's like Genesis 25. They're both related to Abraham through one or other of his wives. But you have these grand stories that he leaves one place and then sits down by a well as our narrator sort of ties it down to one place. And here you have Moses. What is he thinking? This is a city guy who's now in the country. City guys don't handle the country very well, do they? I'm a bit of a country guy when I go to London. I get a bit nervous about that. Well, city people, when they come and stand in the middle of a field or in a wood, get very nervous because there aren't any buses, trains, coffee shops and things, and they get very nervous about that. It's true. You like your culture. He's a city guy in the country. He's completely out of his our normal environment. What's more... He's an alien. He's an Egyptian, the powerful people of the day, among people who are not Egyptians, who may well not like Egyptians. So it's a nervous sort of place. He's unable to go back to his adoptive family now because he's a wanted murderer. And he can't return to the Hebrews because they're slaves. He's a man with nowhere to go. This is not an easy situation. He has no experience of living off the land. He has no connections anywhere. His future looks utterly bleak. The wilderness is not a good place to discover how little you know about growing crops so that you can eat them. But nonetheless, feeling like this, he must have sat down at the world thinking, what have I done? That's the end of everything. Nonetheless, as these girls come along with their sheep to water them and the shepherds come along and shoo them away, he stands up this alien, in an alien environment because the right thing to do is to stand up for the downtrodden. 
to have compassion for the weak. And even though his life has just fallen utterly apart, he sees what needs to be done. God is doing something deep in this man's life. He's going to take any arrogance that may be there, any self-confidence away, but he wants compassion. God wants love, wants care. He wants someone who really understands what it is to be an alien in an alien environment. And so he stands up for these girls. He's obviously some kind of guy, isn't he? Because he can kill an Egyptian taskmaster with his bare hands. That's some strength, my friends. If you want to fight one person to person, it's not an easy thing to kill him. I tell you that for nothing. Not that I've tried, by the way. I'm not alleging that I've tried. But it's very. he's a strong guy. And he's obviously got some kind of presence that he can shoo away a number of shepherds who are not wimps. You have to say they're tough, wiry guys. But he also has compassion for these girls. And he's generous to them. He even waters their flock. Not just clears the way for them, but he actually does the hard work of watering their flocks for them. Whether he does that with an eye for the main chance, it doesn't say here, but he's a man who's looking to do something. So when the girls get back to their father, he says, Golly, you're back quick. And they say, well, there was the, the Egyptian there. See, he's recognisable. as an Egyptian city guy wearing a suit in the middle of a wilderness. What on earth is he doing out there? He's got dust on his shoes. And they say, well, this guy helped us. And he said, well, what? you didn't leave him there, did you? Come on, Eastern hospitality, get him to come here for something to eat. It's interesting. Have you ever been asked to do something in church? Well, well just fill in for six weeks and 27 years later, you're still doing it? It's funny because he's invited for a meal and he stays for 40 years just for a meal. It's a long meal, isn't it? That's, that's some hospitality. So he comes to Rule, who's called Jethro. It's obviously one name or the other, or both names. He's got two names here. Who says, thank you very much for looking after my daughters. Please come and stay. And you've got nowhere to go? Well, stay with me then as long as you want. And uh, Rule recognises that this kind of guy is a good guy for a son-in-law, even though he's a city gent, speaks posh. But actually he could, he could learn the trade. So why don't you come and stay? Why don't you have one of my daughters as your wife? And this is someone embracing Moses into his family. God is a father to the fatherless. So they marry and have two sons. One is mentioned here, Gershom sounds like the Hebrew for a foreigner. Eleazar, the later one, is my God, is helper. But now he settles. And the years just roll by. And the memory of what he had in Egypt begins to dissipate. And maybe the idea that he was going to be the liberator of the Hebrews, was that just grandiose thinking? And the years tick by. The years tick by. What price now? God's call on his life. He seems to have blown it. What occupies his thoughts as he spends those lonely nights on his shepherding vigil in the wilderness? Has it all passed him by? Was that it? Was that his one chance? Has he blown it? And now this is what life is all about. He can never reconnect with his genuine family. He can't connect with his adopted family. But God is working things out. Nothing is changing on the human level, but God is doing something. Three things need to happen before God says, 
now is the moment. He's still waiting for things to work through and when the time is right, all things will come together. And in the meanwhile, this is not waiting in a doctor's waiting room where you're just flicking through the latest geographic magazine or some other sort of magazine there thinking this is just idle time. What we're doing now is actually God's training time. Every day for us is training for the next thing. It's not idle. But it's not saying, well, wait until another month and then I'll give you a shout. So do whatever you want in the meanwhile. This is on-the-job training. This is apprenticeship. This is what God does. So here are the three things. The sins of the Aram Amorites have to be completed. God said to Moses, to Abraham many years before, many years before, 400 plus years before, the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. When they are, your family will come back here. So it looks as if the sins of the Amorites are complete. Not that they committed all the sins they could possibly commit, but God's going to say, enough. They've had enough time to repent and they're not going to do it. Now is the moment when they're going to be sorted out. That time is coming. So that one is coming together. The Egyptian king who wants Moses dead, which would be disastrous because that would frustrate God's purposes, needs to be out of the way. He's just died. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. That's number two. And the number three, of course, is Moses' education has to be completed. He's got his BA in political science in the palaces of Egypt. He's about to get his MA in desert survival. And he needs both of them. The one won't crack it. He needs both of these things. And that's coming to a conclusion. If the first degree was completed in luxury and comfort, in the comfort of a palace, his second is in very different circumstances. Jacob, in Genesis 31, described shepherding as being confronting wild beasts on a regular basis, the risk of thieves coming and stealing your sheep and adding to their flock, unbearable heat by day, bitter cold by night, endless sleeplessness as you're trying to look after sheep and sleep. It's a really tough job. And it's not for the faint-hearted. This is really hard stuff. Moses is learning what it is to live in a desert. And looking after sheep is not an easy job. You know, the vision of a shepherd at the front of his flock all following behind on the way was wonderful, isn't it? But that's not how it is, because they get eaten by wild animals. They get lost down ravines. Thieves come and try and crack you over the head and steal the sheep and so forth. It's a tough job. Bringing the Israelites out of Egypt into the Promised Land is going to be tougher for him. They're going to be even more of a pain in the neck. And this is what his training is all about. It may seem like frustration to him, not going anywhere, but it's priceless training. I wonder if you ever you look back on your life and think, oh... Actually doing that was a help to what I do now. I never realised it at the time. Sometimes that worked, not always. But it's severe training. Well, meanwhile, in Egypt, the Israelites are still wondering where God has gone. They still haven't heard from God at all. They haven't heard anything that Moses might have heard. They're still holding on to promises like Moses' parents were at one time. Where is this God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Why doesn't he listen to our prayers? Why doesn't he come and do something? Well, we know he is. We know he's already got something in train. 
even though he hasn't confessed it to them and explained it to them. So they cry out to God in agony, calling for help. And help is already on its way. Already on its way. There's a little story I read once of um, a missionary in an African country inviting children to ask for something. And, uh, and uh, they were in a medical condition, a medical uh, compound. A little baby had been born that was premature and needed heating. They live in an African country. It's in the summer in an African country, but it gets very cold at night. Their one water bottle that they used to um, warm premature babies had split. So they had no way of keeping this little baby warm at night. That was their only means of doing it. So the children, at the invitation of the missionary, got a water bottle to them. And the missionary nurse thought, well, that's an empty prayer, because whoever is going to send a water bottle to an African country in the summer is nonsense. The next day, a water bottle was delivered that had been sent two months before and was already on its way before ever it was needed. God's help is already on its way long before it arrives visibly. God can time things like that. He can do anything. So we should remind ourselves that the coming rescue that we will enjoy at some point in the future, in about 2025, if we're still alive, if we go at this rate anyway, is coming along. We're going through the book of Exodus in little bits and pieces. But when the rescue comes... It owes everything to God remembering his covenant, having compassion on his people. When he saves them, he will save them because of their predicament. And he will respond to their cries for help. But that's not the only reason God saves. God saves because he's that kind of God. He's a God who saves. He's a God who delivers. He's a God who rescues. He's a God who redeems. That's the kind of God we worship. He's a God of grace. How does he love us? Because he's that kind of God. So he responds to us because of our predicament, but he wants also to act according to his own nature and to honour his name. So he looks on them. He's concerned about them. He remembers his covenant. And they're going to find out that he's been working all the time to bring about their rescue. Something's going to happen that's going to change all their lives forever and they have no idea yet Father we have worshipped you because of the things we have seen you do in our lives but we know that you're working much more beyond the scenes of that things we don't see many of us have loved ones in our families for whom we pray regularly that you will be merciful and deliver them we don't know what you're doing behind the scenes, even if it looks like nothing. We know you are at work. So we are encouraged to pray more, Lord. Keep doing it, whatever it is. Keep bringing them to the place, Lord, where they will come into the kingdom of God. So we look to you, Lord, and are not thrown by the fact that other things seem to be paramount. You are the Lord of glory. You are the creator of all things. You do all things well.
So we worship you, Lord. Receive your word as an encouragement, life-giving encouragement, strengthening us in our resolve to walk rightly with you, in step with your spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen.